Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord. Our Father, we're thankful for your word that gives us light in darkness, that without your word we would not know who you are, we would not understand the great love with which you have loved the human race, so that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that you have designed a plan of salvation that is not dependent upon our works. It's not dependent upon our exercise of ritual or obedience or morality. But it is based upon the work that Christ did on the cross. For none of us could ever do anything that would merit your, your grace. It is freely given. It is without condition. And it is demonstrated at the cross. So, Father, now as we look at what the Scripture teaches about faith, help us to understand it a little more and have a better understanding of what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 4 as the one faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we have been studying through the, the way in which we are to walk worthy. And when we look at this opening paragraph, this opening section, verses 1 through 6, that we are exhorted to walk in a manner that is worthy of this new position, this high exalted position we have now that we are in Christ and members of God's family. And as Paul describes this in verse 2, he describes this as a walk that is characterized by humility, not by arrogance. It is characterized by patience and by putting up with one another in love. And then verse 3 says that we are to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then what he is describing is what this bond consists of in verses 4, 5, and 6. And there are seven things that are stated, each of which is preceded by the letter 1 that we, there is, um, we are called to one hope of our calling, that confident expectation of our position in Christ and our future destiny with him. And then in verse 5, we read, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
So this is the the centerpiece of these three statements in verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4, as I've said before, focuses on that which is related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to each believer. Verse 5 relates to that which is uh, the role of God the Son in terms of our salvation and spiritual life. And verse 6, the role of God the Father. And so we read last time, the last actually two or three lessons, we looked at one Lord, that the Greek word translated Lord, kurios, has several different meanings. It can be a polite form of address to someone who is due uh, a certain amount of honor or or it can refer to someone who is in a position of authority over us. But in the Old Testament, it is also that word that translates the name of God, Yahweh. So it speaks of deity and that Jesus Christ is deity. He is divine. And I went through the last two Sundays, went through a series of prophecies that were given from, uh, well, some of the prophecies were given and recorded, but not in the present Old Testament. Uh, They go back to creation, goes back to God's first indication of this conflict because of sin, and that there would be an ultimate resolution of that conflict when the seed of the woman, that is the descendant of the woman, would defeat the descendant of Satan. And so then we looked at how there were a number of prophecies given between that time, and it's recording in approximately 1406 B.C., from that time up to the time of Jesus' birth in Nazareth, which was approximately 2 B.C. So we have over a hundred prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ uh, precisely and specifically, and we just looked at about 12 of them over the last couple of weeks. And so that establishes what Scripture teaches, is that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was the unique person of all of history. He is the God-man, that he eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity, whom we refer to as God the Son, and that he left his place in heaven to enter into human history through the normal process of birth. And this was predicted through various prophecies in the Old Testament, that he would be born in Bethlehem, be born of a virgin, and that he would be called Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God is with us. So he is the incarnate God. He has taken on human flesh yet. As Philippians 2, 5 through 11 teaches, he was without sin. And because of the virgin birth, he did not inherit the sin nature. Neither was he guilty of Adam's original sin. Therefore, Uh, He was born sinless, lived a sinless life, which qualified him to go to the cross to die for our sins. So all of that is encapsulated by this one phrase, one Lord, emphasizing his deity. 
The second phrase is one faith. Now, faith is used a number of ways in the Bible. So what is the one faith that Paul is talking about? And this gets into another issue because the word faith, not only do we talk about faith in different aspects, we talk about faith in relation to salvation, we talk about faith in terms of our spiritual life, our spiritual walk with the Lord, but uh, sometimes the word faith isn't emphasizing the act of believing, but it is emphasizing the content of what we believe. And if you read through the commentaries and you read through various uh, interpretations, because there's not a lot of context around that phrase, you will find pretty much an even split among those who say, well, this is emphasizing one faith in terms of the faith we, should, we are to have in order to be saved. And then the other others will take it to refer to the body of belief. There's one central body of, of doctrine, of teaching, that we are to believe as, as Christians. Now, the problem I have with that as I wrestle with it, because that, was, that has been my sort of normal default position, is that if you were to describe what the components of that faith would be, it's going to be fairly large because you have to bring in a, a lot of other aspects. And I think that in terms of the context, what we're talking about is that which relates to Jesus Christ. And so it is most likely that the foundation here, unifying foundation here is not the body of faith, but is the faith in Christ. There is only one gospel. There's only one good news. There are a lot of people who muddy the gospel. There are a lot of people who add things to the good news, which means it's not quite so good news because you have to do a lot instead of the good news that Christ has done it all. And there are others who uh, try to make faith mean something other than the simple act of belief, trusting, and relying upon Christ alone for salvation. And this is sandwiched between the first statement, one Lord emphasizing that uh, Christ is God, and that he and that brings to bear his role as the savior and the third phrase in the verse one baptism now we talked a lot about the baptism by the holy spirit when i was talking about the things that the holy spirit does for the church age believer and from that we understand that in the gospel passages when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down to the Jordan and he is going to baptize Jesus, that that is the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. But when he saw Jesus coming down, he announces that he has baptized with water, but the one who comes after him will baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire and that he will he is the one who will baptize and since he is the subject of the verb 
that tells us that Christ is the one who baptizes. That's why baptism is listed in this verse and not in the previous verse. Because baptism, while we talk about it in relation to the Holy Spirit's ministry, it is actually Christ who performs and is the performer of that action using the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. So the focal point in the middle of these two statements is we're going to relate to salvation because of the context of these two verses. The one baptism occurs when we trust in Christ as Savior. So what is this one faith that we have in Christ? So we need to think a little bit about what it means to believe in Christ. What does this mean when we talk about faith? Before I start explaining that, I want us to turn back just a few pages to the left in your Bible, and we'll be in the epistle to Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, Excuse me, Galatians chapter 2.16. Galatians 2.16. Now this is a very important verse, and it's a very important context, because in this epistle to the Galatians, who are, that refer to a region, an area in south-central Turkey. So if you imagine a map of Turkey, you just go to the middle and go south to the coast, and that area was part of the... Uh, Roman province of Galatia. And Paul had gone there on his first missionary journey. He had traveled to the cities of of Antioch, uh, there the Antioch uh, uh, Pisidia, and then you have uh, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, and he went to the synagogues there and then revisited them. And now there's a problem there because when he got a lot of opposition from Jews that lived in that area who were still focused on the law of Moses and that they had bought into the rabbinical idea that what saves us is our good works, what saves us is obeying the law, what saves us is the ritual that's in the law of Moses. And so they had been teaching that, okay, it's great to believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, but but it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to add something to it. You have to have add these ritual works and obedience to the law if you're going to be saved. And so Paul comes down on them very hard, and he doesn't ta- give a whole lot of inf- uh, of. Uh, 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 he doesn't add a lot to his message at the beginning uh, to sort of soften the blow. He just jumps right into it. Usually Paul will talk about a lot of things, talk about how he's praying for the recipients of his epistle and and what he, what has been accomplished in them. But he just jumps right into it in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I marvel. And it basically says, I'm just astounded that you're turning away so quickly from him who called you in the grace of Christ. Okay, so that's similar to what he's talking about in Ephesians 4, verse 1, that we're to walk 
in a manner worthy of that what? That elevated position that we now have in Christ. That's what we are called to. That's the invitation. And he says, you have turned from that to a different gospel. And the word that is translated different in Greek is the word heteros. There's two different words that translated other or different in the New Testament. One is the word heteros, and one is the word um, homos. And the one has to do with another of the same kind. That's what uh, homos means. And that is like we see in homogenized milk, that first, that first syllable, is that everything is stirred up and is unified. Okay, there's no, no difference. It's another of the same kind. That's what you have in the word homosexual, having a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. But heteros has the idea of something uh, something different. It's a difference of the same kind. We have heterosexual, a male and a female. They are different, but they are of the same kind. They are both human beings. So when Paul uses this word that's translated different, it's the word heteros. It's a kind of gospel, but it's not the same kind of gospel. It is a gospel of a different kind. And then he explains that even further in verse 7. He says, which is not another that is of the same kind. But there are some of you, some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's a very strong statement. Let him be judged. He is not saying let a curse come on him. He's not, it's not like witchcraft or sorcery or juju black magic. He's just saying, saying let them be judged because they're perverting the gospel. And if you don't believe the, the gospel, the good news, then you're not going to be going to heaven. And so we have this difference that he's dealing with here uh, between the true gospel and a false gospel. The false gospel he's dealing with are those who say that you are saved by works or another way that the Bible talks about salvation is justification. And that is what makes you just before God. God is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. We are not. We are good in relation to other people. We are good sometimes in relation to how we have been or how we might be in the future. But it's all a relative standard, whereas when we are judged according to God, God's standard, then we fall short. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, and they fall short of the glory of God, which is a phrase that, dis- that talks about the entirety of God's character, which is his glory. So it is, we fall short of his glory. So that we can do nothing to get up to that level of, of righteousness. That was the, one of the interesting things yesterday is um, people came and sat down and were going through this survey one of the questions on the survey was, how sure are you that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? Are you 10% sure? Are you 20 to 30% sure? 
maybe 40 or 50 percent sure, 80 percent sure, or 100 percent sure. And of the four people that we talked to, every, every, one person said, eh, maybe 40 or 50 percent sure. And most of the others were about 70 or 80 percent sure, but they weren't confident 100 percent that if they died right now that they would, that they would go to heaven. And so I uh, would say, well, what, what do you need to do to get into heaven? And uh, so th- that's the next question. They, uh, do you have to be good? Uh, do you have to be moral? Uh, what must you do to get into God's heaven? And so they would say, yeah, we need to, we need to be good. We need to be moral. We need to do these, these other things. And so when we'd get through, we would say, okay, would you like to know with 100% that that you could go to heaven. And they all said, sure, sure, I'd, I'd like to know that. So then we would take them through a, a gospel presentation. The other day I was driving home from church, and there was a, uh, looked like a little small trailer set up in a parking lot of the one of the uh, shopping areas that I drive through. And it says... COVID, uh, COVID testing at no cost to you. I thought, boy, that's, that's a great line. I like that. Because what God is offering to us is eternal life at no cost to you. So often we hear the phrase that it's free, it's a gift, but that just really crystallizes what we're talking about is eternal life is a free gift at no cost to you. It costs someone something. It costs Christ his death on the cross. But to us, it's, it's free. It's no cost, no cost to us. But this is the challenge here in these first couple of chapters of Galatians because what the Judaizers were saying was, no, there is a cost to you. You not only have to believe in Christ, but you have to also, if you're a male, you have to be circumcised and be under the Mosaic law, and everyone else needs to be and have to follow all of the uh, 613 laws in the Mosaic law uh, in order to be saved. It's Jesus plus something else. And so we come to one of the great verses in his explanation, which is in Galatians 2.14, or excuse me, I keep saying 14, 2.16, where he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's the first phrase. And that word knowing is a participle, that's the I-N-G ending, and it, it, it expresses a causal idea because we know something. So he's talking to the Galatian believers and he's saying, you know this because you know this. So he's building on that foundation, what he had taught them before, that we are not justified by the works of the law. So he, he just cuts the rug out from under the Judaizers and says the works of the law cannot save anybody. We're not justified by the works of the law. And then the question we will, how are we justified? And that's on the other side of the but. But by faith in Christ or in Jesus Christ, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a focuses us on the fact that what the Scripture teaches is we are to believe something 
And that something, the object of our faith, has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he goes on to say is even we, that is, he knows because of his ministry to those to whom he is writing, to the Galatians, he says, we have believed in Christ Jesus. It wasn't, we didn't add anything to it. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So he's repeating this, that it's not by the works of the law, the second time he says that in this verse. And then he explains that further in the last clause of the verse, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now that word, no flesh, what, what's, what does that include? Does that leave anybody out? Is that a universal statement? Everybody is the same. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter uh, what rituals you've gone through or you haven't gone through. Is that nobody, no one, uh, can be justified by the works of the law. It is only by faith in Christ. So what does it mean to have faith in Christ? That's our question here. What is faith? In terms of introduction, are there different kinds of faith? Yes, there's saving faith, and there's the faith in terms of walking by the Spirit, our day-to-day, what we call the faith rest drill, trusting in God's promise. So there's also an issue of super, are there two kinds of faith? A supernatural faith versus a natural faith, or is all faith the same? What distinguishes it is the object of faith. There are those that think that when we, when you look at Ephesians, You can go back a couple of pages, and we studied this in detail at the time. When you look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In the Greek, the word that is in the uh, neuter gender. It's a relative pronoun, and so the gender of the pronoun must agree with the noun to which it refers. So if you have a masculine noun, the pronoun has to be masculine. If it's a feminine noun, then the relative pronoun has to be feminine. If it's a neuter noun, then the relative pronoun has to be neuter. So this is a neuter noun. And you have those who come along and say that, see, this refers to faith. That, that the that not of yourselves is that that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That God gives you saving faith. And God only gives saving faith to those who the elect, those whom he has chosen to save. There's a little problem with that, though. And the problem with that is the noun for faith is a feminine noun. So the that cannot refer back to faith. Grace is also a, a, a feminine noun. 
salvation is a masculine noun. So you have two feminine nouns and a masculine noun, and the relative pronoun is a plural. So what's it doing? It's describing all three. And this is how Greek worked, that if you had masculine noun and feminine noun, and you're going to use a relative noun to refer to them, then it has to be, it's going to be in the neuter gender. And if you're referring to a sentence, you're referring to a set of books or anything, anything in the plural like that, it's going to be, it's going to be in the um, neuter. And so, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, by grace through faith salvation, it refers to that whole phrase, by that by grace through faith salvation is the gift of God. Now, there are others who have taken the word faith there, which is the word pistis, and said that this refers to faithfulness, which is not true. In fact, in John MacArthur's first volume on the gospel according to Jesus, that is what he said, and then he had a footnote explaining that, and he was criticized by a number of people I have a I have a series that we wrote at that time. Tommy Ice and I were publishing a theological newsletter uh, that we called the Gospel Wars, and we were comparing the views of MacArthur and Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie, and that was one of the points that I made was that he mistranslates this. Now he probably never even read what I wrote, but there were others of greater stature who wrote that as well. And he did change it in his second edition. But the point that I am making here is we have to understand that faith here is the channel. It is through faith. The faith itself is not uh, meritorious. What I mean by that is it's not the kind of faith that saves us. It's the object of faith that saves us. It is Christ. Uh, And so there's no distinction between a supernatural kind of faith and a natural faith, all faith is faith. That when you come in here and you sit down in the chair, you just believe that that chair was not going to collapse under you when you sat down. Some of you may have gotten up this morning, you just had faith that when you went out to the car and you uh, either inserted the key or you punched the button, depending on if you have keyless ignition, um, that the car would start. And I know of at least one person whose faith was misfounded this morning, and her car did not start. So that's faith. It's the object of faith that has significance. So in my case, when I went out and got in my car and I punched the button, I had a worthy object of faith, and my car started. But she did not have a worthy object of faith, and her car did not start. It is the object of faith that is significant, not the kind of faith that is significant. So we have uh, also this statement. The second question is saving faith or non-saving faith. In other words, can a person have faith in Christ as Messiah and Savior who died for his sins and not be saved? No. No. But John MacArthur and others who hold to lordship salvation do put forth the, the, the statement that, yes, you can have a non-saving faith. This is a position in Calvinism. 
that there, the only saving faith is that faith that God has given you. That's what they argue. And the way they try to uh, support that or document that is that in the Gospel of John, one of the earliest places in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, is that Jesus has been uh, has performed several miracles, and he is in Jerusalem on the on the day of, of Pentecost. And as he performs various min, uh, miracles, and as he uh, teaches the Jews, um, there were many that believed on him. And so. Uh, at the end, it says, uh, verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. The signs were, were his calling card. The signs were his validation that his claim to be God and his claim to be the Savior, the Messiah, uh, was true. And so people saw that, and they believed in him. Now, now MacArthur and others, usually I don't name names, but he's so well-known, and this, this clarifies it for people, makes two false statements about this. He says, first of all, he, he states that uh, belief on the basis of signs is not as good a faith as faith direct faith in Christ. It's an inadequate faith if it's based on signs. I hope that you're already going in your mind to a verse that contradicts this. Think about it. John twenty thirty one, And John is writing towards the end of his gospel, and he says, and these, and that means, and these things. But what are the things? What's that these, another one of those uh, relative pronouns, what's that referring back to? At the end of the verse before, it concludes by saying, and Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book. But these, these what? These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and uh, by believing have life in his name doesn't sound to me like a belief on the basis of signs is an inadequate faith for salvation. But that's what MacArthur says. And he says that these here are not real, did not have a faith that saved them because in the next verse, verse 24, we read, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And MacArthur then concludes, If they were saved, Jesus would, not, would have committed himself to them. Now, that's just another very shallow, superficial view of faith because it's the assumption that just because somebody is a believer that they're trustworthy. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of Christians that aren't trustworthy. And I remember years ago they used to put out a Christian yellow pages as if just because this person is a Christian that they're trustworthy and they're going to do the best job repairing your car or cleaning your carpets or painting your house or whatever it might be. And while I hope that whoever paints my house and cleans my carpets and fixes my car is a believer, I would rather have the person who is doing the job do the best job that can be done rather than that they be a believer. 
I hope they're both, and get the opportunity to make sure that they understand the gospel. But I've known people who said, in fact, I, one time I knew a couple in Dallas who said, you know, we always make sure we get somebody to work on our house that's a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness because they do better jobs than, than, than Christians do because, because they have to work their way to heaven, and if they don't do a good job, they may lose their salvation. And I thought, oh, that's just really a terrible testimony for Christians, isn't it, that they don't do a very good job because they're not working their way to heaven. So Jesus doesn't commit himself to them because he knew that they still were thinking of him as a political Messiah and not the Messiah that would save them. They had believed on him as Messiah. It was legitimate, and they're saved, but they didn't know anything beyond that, and what they thought they knew beyond that was wrong, and that was why Jesus wasn't committing himself to them. So when we look at this question uh, supernatural faith or natural faith, there's only one kind of faith. That is something that is trusting or believing in the object. Saving faith or non-saving faith, that what makes the difference is the object of faith. If you're believing, what does that verse say? They believed in his name. That is, in the Greek, it's the same clause that is used again and again and again all throughout John to express the object of the gospel. And then we have this next line. You've heard this before. Some people say, well, and what they're trying to say is they just had some kind of intellectual understanding of the gospel, but they didn't really trust it. So they say, well, they had a head faith uh, and not a heart faith. And, and, and that's wrong. You know, some people say, oh, so-and-so uh, missed heaven by 18 inches, the distance between their heart and their head. The the Bible doesn't know anything about those kinds of distinctions, but a lot of evangelicals use that in their ignorance of the Scripture. So in this first point, I, I want to say, ask the question, what does the Bible mean by heart? We can go all the way back to Genesis, a verse that is a tremendous condemnation of the problems of the of the human condition, which is sin. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's in their heart? Thoughts. With what do you think? Your brain. So they're the thoughts of the heart. The heart is just another way of talking about what's in the center, what really moves men, and that's their thinking. So hard faith is a faith based on thinking. Actually, that term is never used in the Scripture. Another passage, Deuteronomy 59, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. Your heart thinks. That means the heart is a term for your mind, the thinking part of your soul. Psalm 15, 2, uh, and speaks the truth in his heart. So heart is intellectual activity. And it discerns the difference between truth and error. Psalm 49.3, meditation of my heart. We think. Meditation is thinking through something, thinking about something, mulling it over in your mind. So heart there indicates thinking. Acts 8.22, pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart. See, your heart thinks. That's the thinking part. And there's no distinction in the Bible between your heart and your mind. You, they're the same thing. 
Psalm 73:21 that's my the the parallelism here is important it's a synonymous parallelism so the first line says my heart was grieved and the second line says i was vexed vexed is parallel to grief and it says i was vexed in my mind it's an a b b a construction where heart is your first term and mind is your last term but they're the the synonyms so our heart is our mind Second thing I want to note is that there are different kinds of faith in the Scripture, but they're related to different objects of faith. It's not the faith itself that changes. It's a different kind of faith. It's a different object of faith. So some people believe in the law as a means of salvation. Others believe in Christ as the means of salvation. Uh, Different objects of faith. So Romans 1.17 says, For in it, in the previous verse, he talks about the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Two different kinds of faith. The first faith is saving faith. The second faith is faith related to spiritual life or spiritual growth. The first faith is the faith you need to have new life. And the second faith is related to faith in the promises and principles of Scripture that you can grow by them. Third thing we see is that faith is a mental activity that is triggered by volition. We must make a decision as to whether or not we believe something is true or not. So faith is not an emotion. Some people think that faith is emotion. Other people will say that faith means commitment. Faith does not mean commitment. Faith means to believe something, to trust something, to rely upon something. Acts 16.31 doesn't say have positive emotions about the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that's how a lot of people understand it. It doesn't say commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's the same phrase everywhere we go in the Gospel of John which is written for the purpose of people believing on Jesus as the Messiah. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, It doesn't say these are written that you might commit yourself to Jesus. The word believe is used over 95 times in the Gospel of John. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's an imperative. An imperative is a command, and a command is always addressed to your volition. And so what we see is that faith, we can choose to believe or not believe. Fourth, faith is always directed towards an object which which can be expressed as a proposition. Now, some people have a lot of problems with this. But think about this. You've probably heard somebody say this. You get saved by having a relationship with Jesus. Oh, so-and-so has a relationship with Jesus, so they're saved. Is that true or false? It's absolutely false. Judas Iscariot had a relationship with Jesus for three years, and he then betrayed Jesus and never trusted, never believed in him for salvation. Belief doesn't mean to have a relationship with, and the Bible never once uses that kind of language to describe the gospel. You believe in a proposition, 
Some people say, well, I, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, well, what do you know about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the God-man. Where did you get that? Well, it says it in Scripture. Okay, that's a proposition. A proposition. The word proposition is a technical term for a statement that can be verified or falsified. If I say, what's the temperature outside? Is that, can that statement be verified or falsified? No, it's a question. If I say the temperature outside is 30 degrees, can that be verified or falsified? Yes, you go get a thermometer, you go outside, you can tell what the temperature is. If I say go to the store and and, uh, get some milk, is that true or false? It's neither. It's a command. It's not a statement. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Is that true or false? That's true. See, it's a statement that can be verified on the facts of Scripture or can be falsified. So what we're believing is proposition. Everything we know about Jesus is written down as a statement in the Bible. That's why you'll sometimes hear people refer to the Bible as propositional truth. Okay? So we, we, none of us ever saw Jesus. None of us ever had a conversation with Jesus as a, a, a personal, three-dimensional entity standing in front of us. We only know about Jesus from the statements of Scripture. That's what I mean by the fact that we are believing a proposition. The proposition is basically that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we either believe that to be true or we believe that to be, be false. It's not an emotion for us to f- feel our way through. It doesn't mean make a commitment. It is to trust in it, to believe it, to accept it as true. That's the, that's the sense of a proposition. Now, historically within Calvinism... Uh, faith was broken down into these three categories. Notitia is the Latin word for understanding. You can't believe something you don't understand. Let me give you an example. On scazel, my pronunciation's horrible. Bergi the gospoda Jesusa Christe e Spasicia ti bes dom tvoi. Can you believe that? <laughs> Why can't you believe it? You don't know what it says. You don't understand it. See, you can't believe something you don't understand. You have to understand the elements of the proposition. You have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the God-man. That's why you, you don't really start in John with the gospel. You have to start in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you have to understand who God is, that he is not related to anything in the universe. He is totally other. You can't confuse him with anything in his creation. That gets rid of pantheism, panentheism, animism, spiritism, all these other things. 
So God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 2, he gives the test to man that, that don't eat from this one fruit of this one tree. You can eat from anything else and everything else, but you can't eat from this. The instant you do, you're going to die. In Genesis 3, they die. They eat from the fruit. They die. They're separated from God. You have to understand that so you understand why Jesus came. These are two of the trees in the Bible, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of the cross. That's what we have to understand. The verse that I read to you is Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, can you, do you believe that? See, you understand it so you can believe it. Belief is to understand that something is true. Now, some people say, well, you know, some of you think that all faith is is intellectual assent. Problem is most people can't think clearly through vocabulary. We've already established you believe with your mind. You don't believe with emotion. You don't believe with volition. You can decide to believe, but you believe with your mind. It's intellectual. Belief is intellectual. And assent, what does assent mean? It means to agree that something is true. Now, I know most of you did not intend to cheat on your income taxes. Some of you made mistakes on your income taxes. But when you reach that bottom line and you had to calculate all your figures and check them out to make sure that the bottom line was accurate, what did you do? You signed your name saying that it was true, and you put your pen or pencil down. You agreed that it was true. You were confident that it was true. You were trusting that the data you gave the government was accurate. That's what belief is. It is agreeing that something is true. And But what's important is that you have to believe the right thing. See, some people believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died for my sins. Does that save them? No. See, some people come along and they say, well, you know, I believe that Darwin said that man, hum humanity evolved over millions of years through, from simple life forms to we're the most advanced life forms. But that doesn't mean you believe it. To believe that someone says something isn't the same thing as believing what is said. So a lot of people hear the gospel and go, well, I believe the Bible teaches that. But they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. So when Scripture said, God so loved the world, you can just insert your name there, God loved you in such a way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, and the fifth point, we'll stop here this morning, is we don't believe directly in a person or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus, but first we believe the propositions in Scripture that inform us about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. So that means that faith is rational 
and not irrational. How many times do you hear people say, well, you either have faith or science? But see, all science is based on faith. Because at some level, you have to believe that your brain is good enough to understand and accurately interpret the data you see. Faith underlies everything, and we'll talk about that when we come back next time. But faith is rational. Faith is based on knowledge, and faith is based on evidence. Faith doesn't mean I park my brain and I'm just some... Uh, dumb person who just will believe any any nice-sounding thing that comes along. Faith is not gullibility. Now, there are a lot of Christians who are very gullible, but that doesn't mean that their faith in Christ is based on an irrational gull- gullibility. Faith is rational, and we trust in what Scripture says on the basis of evidence. In the first three or four verses of the book of Acts, which is describing the disciples meeting with Jesus after the resurrection and just before he ascends to heaven. And it says, in summarizing the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes, And Jesus appeared to them with many convincing proofs. Remember, when Jesus was crucified, all the disciples except for one ran away. They were in hiding. They were afraid they were going to be arrested. They didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't believe it. They were cowards, and they were cowering. But what happens? Three days later, Jesus appeared to them, and the proofs were so convincing that all but one of them died for the faith they had in the resurrection of Christ because the convince, they were so convinced that this was the body of Christ the physic it was physically present they could touch it they could feel it they could put their hands in the wounds this was the resurrected Christ and they could see him pass through walls as if they weren't there so it was based on proof we'll talk about that when we come back next week with our heads bowed and eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to study about faith, to come to understand it, to recognize that that that's the basis for our salvation, not the faith in and of itself. It's not, not that we believe. It's not faith that does anything. It is Christ who did it all on the cross. He paid the penalty, and we trust in him because he is the God-man, the perfect sinless God-man who came to the earth and who lived among us and died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and gave many convincing proofs that he was who he said he was and that he did what he said he did. And so, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening online now or in the future, that this would be a very clear explanation of what's necessary to be saved. And that this is the one faith that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1. There is one faith that is common to every Christian, and that is faith alone in Christ alone, which is what saves us. Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture, and we pray that you would help us to think through the things that we have talked about today and reflect upon them as we continue to read our Bibles and learn about what Jesus did for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.